парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце наши заболели. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined just by Margaret Budik again this week. Rusana is out in the village somewhere. She said she had to, she's working in some festival. So who, I'm really curious about what this festival, maybe it's a renaissance fair. I don't know if they do that out there, but we'll, we'll find out next when she comes back. Uh, as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going and uh, work on some other things that we have planned that hopefully we'll reveal towards the end of the summer. Uh, if you would like to become a patron, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and uh, find that button in the upper right-hand corner and join the Table of Ranks. Okay, Margaret. So this week we have uh, an interview with Ilya Budraiskis. Um, I've known Ilya for, uh, I don't know, a couple of years now. Um, uh, he's, he's stayed at my place. I've visited him in Moscow a couple of times. Um, I, I find him as an interesting, uh, sharp mind uh, for someone on the left in Russia. So uh, I'm always excited to, to hear what he has to say. Uh, so why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce him? Absolutely. Ilya Budraitskis is a political and social theorist previously based in Moscow. He writes regularly for Eflux Journal, Open Democracy, Republic RU, Kulta RU, and other outlets, and teaches at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, High School of Economics, and the Institute of Contemporary Art, Moscow. His essay collection, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, was published by Verso in 2022. Here's Ilya Budraitskis. So, Ilya, it's really nice talking to you um, again. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of interviews and a lot of other, you're getting a lot of people asking you about your opinion about Russia, the, the war. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, and you have this new book out that's been translated into English that's out on Verso, Dissidents Against Dissidents. Um, so I, it's a good opportunity to talk about some of those things, especially to see how they relate to the present. But I thought I'd start by asking a personal question, um, because in in his foreword, uh, Tony Wood goes through your biography a bit, your political biography. And, you know, you were born in 1981 and you spent your teenage and formative years in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and you became political and you became a leftist, which in the Russian context, I think is somewhat rare. Most people are either apolitical or they gravitate towards, say, liberalism or nationalism or something like this. So I'm kind of curious how you t narrate your political gravitation to the left in those in that time. Yeah, of course, you are quite right uh, that this kind of political choice to to be a young leftist in the late 90s was not typical. But I will say that that was a time when the great kind of resentment among the young uh, people uh, in the post-Soviet Russia emerged because, because of the economic crisis, uh, because of the consequences of the market reforms, and because of the failure 
of the, let's say, liberal project in Russia. So it was late 90s, it became clear that instead of some kind of bright democratic future, we have the authoritarian uh, kind of soft authoritarian power, which cover itself with the liberal anti-communist kind of demagogy. And in that moment, the first kind of post-Soviet generation, or I will say many from this from this generation, turned to different type of, of alternatives. So that was a moment when the National Bolsheviks Party was found and developed. That was a moment of the rise of the different far-right nationalist groups. That was the moment of the birth of the young new generation of the of the left in russia from from anarchism to stalinism and i will say that my politicization more or less belonged to this this process so my personal experience was the experience of the moscow of that time so it was the experience of the great social inequality of of the very negative uh, results of the uh, shock therapy and the politics of Gilson's government. And I will say that in uh, my personal formation, uh, the, the basis, let's uh, use this kind of Marxist uh, definitions. Uh, so the basis was the, let's say, social economic situation of my family, which was, which was quite poor in that time. And the superstructure was the was the the access to let's say socialist literature yeah like books of marxist classics history books and so on and so forth so that's uh, how this politicization on the left became possible in that time and and what what attracted you with because the you know one of the things that I in going to to Russia in the early 2000s when I first started going there I was really amazed by the number of translations of books of you know a lot of not only leftist kind of Marxist tradition but post structuralist tradition all of Foucault's books all of these other philosophers from the West Western Marxism etc and and I'm I'm what attracted you to that that thought. So that uh, moment, this late 90s and early uh, 2000s in Russia was the moment of, let's say, normalization of some kind of escape from the chaos of the primitive accumulation of the early 90s. And that's why the new generation started to think how to describe this reality with the, let's say, tools, with, with the internationally developed theoretical tools. So if we already have some kind of capitalism, could we discuss about this capitalism in the same way as in Western Europe or in Latin America or in the United States and and so on and so forth. So uh, that's why the, you had uh, such a big interest to, let's say, different types of critical theory. 
because this theory looked as something that could be attributed to this new reality and, and to this new normality. And of course, it was a moment when the, all the previous baggage, theoretical baggage, intellectual baggage of the Soviet intelligence of the previous generation of Soviet intelligence look quite outdated. Yeah, like we we can't talk anymore about the transition from totalitarianism to liberal democracy. We need to to analyze the current situation in some new framework. Hmm. Uh, let's turn to some of the things you've been writing for the last couple of years, um, and particularly the first essay in your Verso book. Uh, you know, interstate conflicts are often framed in civilizational terms. I think, you know, all of the growing up and living in the United States, you know, the American way is constantly, you know, put against other types of civilizations. And of course, thanks to Samuel Huntington, the idea of the class clash of civilizations is a basic part of our political discourse now. But in your essay, you ask, you know, was Huntington giving an extraordinarily accurate explanation of reality or a primitive ideological construction that was turned into a terrible reality? So I'm curious as what your answer is to that question. I think the, the answer is quite clear. So we have the terrible reality that was uh, constructed with the help of uh, the concepts borrowed from Huntington. And especially in Russia in, in, uh, in the late 90s, Huntington also became extremely popular. Uh, he was quoted by by liberals, he was quoted by conservatives, he was quoted by communists. So, I mean, like Gennady Zyuganov was one of the first fans of Huntington because it was, it gave some, also some practical, you know, tools to analyze the, the new, the new reality. Yeah. And in fact, if we look at, at the old the concepts uh, from the 90s, we can see it as the, as the battle of different discourses, how to understand, how to conceptualize the reality, the new post-Cold War, post-communist, post-socialist reality, and what, what could be the main actors, main su subjects of this reality. And of course, Huntington proposed very powerful, very insightful, I will say, uh, framework and, and quite simplistic framework for it that was adopted by the different elites in the different, in the different countries. Yeah. And in fact, Russia became one of this, one of these countries. And now we see the bitter fruits of this of this triumph of Huntington's ideas and Huntington's concepts. You know, it's interesting because at the parallel to Huntington's, you know, clash of civilizations concept was also a, a discussions about globalization, right? And there is, of course, the anti-globalization movement in the early, late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, what about the discourses of globalization in Russia? Uh, that, you know, are, you can put against Huntington's clash of civilizations binaries. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting question because uh, actually in the early 2000s, I was very active in the attempt to build a kind of anti-globalization movement in, in Russia. So, for example... I was involved in the in the managing the Russian contingent to the G8 protest against the G8 in Genova in Italy 2001. I, I was also taking part in the European social forums. Once I was in the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre in the, in the early 2000s. And I remember that in that moment when we also were trying to organize some anti-globalist mobilizations uh, in Moscow, I was called by uh, FSB officer, FSB officer, like KGB, FSB, for the informal coffee uh, talk. And I was quite young and naive and I, I, I thought that maybe it could be uh, useful to understand what, you know, these Facebook people are thinking about and so on. So for now, I understand that, of course, that uh, you should uh, refuse in a very, <laughs> in a very straight way for, uh, for, for this kind of invitations. But in that moment, we, we met with him a couple of times and we discussed globalization a lot. Because his uh, main idea was, of course, to like to build some informal contacts with uh, me and somehow uh, use it in his work. And his main narrative was that, okay, Ilya, you are fighting against globalization and we are fighting also against globalization. We are fighting for the Russian civilization, for the traditional values against the colonization of our country by the foreign capital. So we have a lot of common with you. But you as a young, uh, unexperienced person, you made a lot of mistakes. You, 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 you have this kind of uh, nihilist position. You enjoy LGBT, postmodernism and contemporary art and all these things that are culturally alien for, for us and you shouldn't understand it. And in fact, this kind of talk was very typical because some conservative part of the Russian society, some conservative part of the of the state bureaucracy, of the elite, and so on, in some way also opposed the, the globalization, but opposed globalization in the, let's say, Huntington type of position. And I think that this contradiction between these two, two kind of opposition to globalization was an international phenomena. So both points of view were presented in the uh, anti-globalization uh, movement. And uh, I think the, the main failure of, the, of this movement, or let's say the progressive part of this movement, was that it didn't build a consistent alternative to the capitalist globalization and to the conservative reactionary anti-globalization project. And for now, of course, we are living in the moment when the globalization as a concept, as a project is is yeah it's it's coming to the to the end to the to to its catastrophe and what what is the model that replacing this failed globalization and this model is exactly 
the globalization, the anti-globalization project coming from the right, but not from the not from the left. So in this case, this battle for ideas, this battle for discourse in the early uh, 2000s was also quite important for for the coming decades, as we can see by now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, now any talk of anti-globalization is purely a right a right wing. Uh, I mean, they dominate the discourse about this and, and clearly the politics. And this leads me to, you know, considering uh, Putin's war in Ukraine and the fact that it's led to this unprecedented economic isolation of Russia and even to some extent a decoupling from a Western driven capitalist globalization, you know, how do you think that the economic sanctions, the decoupling of Russia to the extent that it will happen actually aids this idea of a Russian or an Orthodox civilization? This is in a way that the sanctions ironically are contributing to this consolidation. What was the main contradiction? One of the main contradictions behind the 20 years, it was the difference in between its rhetorics and its real kind of role in the world, yeah, in the world economy, uh, politics, and so on. So according to the official uh, official narrative, Russia is fighting against monopolar world and it's fighting against the colonization and domination of the Western capital. But in fact, Russian economy was highly globalized exactly in during the 20 years of Vladimir Putin's rule, much more than the previous period of, of yeah. And for now, we can see how, how sanctions are crashing this model without any possibility to build any kind of, you know, alternative, alternative, which could be a kind of outer key or some kind of the Eastern oriented economy and so on. And that's why the, the Western sanctions are so, so powerful. That's why they're, they, they destroying the Russian economy so much is exactly because the Russian economy was uh, deeply uh, integrated in the global economy. Right. And do you think in terms of its ideological impact, does this give, you know, in this idea that the sanctions, the world, or at least the powers of the world putting these sanctions on Russia, um, is this giving a lot of, you know, emboldening the more nationalist fortress Russia, Russian civilization ideology? This is giving them essentially the idea, giving them proof of their, their worldview. Of course, and already called the sanctions a form of the war. So he, he already said that it's, uh, it's the same that, the, let's say, the military action against, against Russia. And actually, this definition uh, of sanctions as war is very actual. It's very actual, not just for Russia, but globally, because the, uh, let's say, it challenged the classical liberal paradigm uh, that there is a choice between the war and trade. Yeah, so that uh, if you are going into trade, you avoid uh, violence, you avoid avoid 
avoid war. But now we're entering the situation where there is no such distinction between, between uh, let's say, war and, and trade. So we see how the some exact parts of the world, they build in their trade connections with the geopolitical interest behind it. Yeah. So in, the, in this sense, Putin's aim to explain the, the economy through politics is very relevant in some way. But also you have the other side of this rhetorics, which is definitely underestimate the real possibilities of the Russian economy. And of course, for, for now, you can... It's very interesting, by the way, that in actual Russian uh, propaganda, one of the most popular narratives is the idea that the West is suffering uh, because of the sanctions much more than Russian economy. Yeah. So we, okay, we're fine. We will eat potatoes. We will use our great Soviet cars. It's not a problem for us. But you, Americans and Western Europeans, you will suffer without our uh, gas. Uh, you will suffer uh, without our grain or whatever. Yes, so of course, uh, that is very far uh, from reality. And it, it will become clear uh, for most of Russians quite soon. So the real impact of the sanctions for the Russian economy is not still visible for the most of the population. And it, it became visible probably in the autumn and in the, in the end, more to the end of this year. Yeah, and it, it is really hard to say if this kind of propaganda will be very effective to this moment. Well, I guess certainly explains why they're considering there's some talk right now. Um, I don't know how extensive it is, but I saw yesterday there is some talk of maybe postponing or canceling the elections in September. And and that would feed completely into when the sanctions start hitting and they don't want to have any, you know, political disunity or cracks in Russian society as a result. They they very much afraid of the of the social protests, of the, let's say, the politicization of the impact of the sanctions. Because any kind of elections, even such managed from the top as Russian elections, is a form of politicization. And definitely the concerns about the inflation, the growing prices and so on, will be somehow articulated in these elections in one way or another. Uh, so that's why I, I think the, the cancel of these elections is, is very, yeah, is very much possible scenario. Um, let, let's turn to some of the ways to kind of try to understand the moment we're in and Russia's place in it. Um, and first, I want to turn to the rhetoric of the new Cold War and between the West and Russia. And, and this, of course, rhetoric has been increasing, particularly over the last decade. Um, now, though, we I think it's safe to say that we're clearly in a there's a proxy war between the West and Russia over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, I'm not interested in whether we're in a Cold War or we're in the Cold War. I'm mostly interested in it. Cold War is an ideological construct as a way to frame how we understand or misunderstand the world around us and also as a disciplinary mechanism 
for for us to think about the world in a different way. So can you talk about the way the Cold War functions in our political discourse and analysis of of the of Russia and the world? Yeah, so of course uh, Cold War functions is as the binary opposition in between the the what is evil and what is uh, what is good. Yeah, and so when you hear any explanations that I don't know that the current conflict in Ukraine is the return of the same battle in between tyranny and uh, democracy, as Joe Biden recently said, that is the definitely the science of the old uh, Cold War, you know, narrative, and that means that you you have to to choose the this side the sides in this global in this global struggle and you have no more any right for the let's say for the dissent for the alternative point of view inside your your own country yeah so this this kind of situation in in russia now works in extremely repressive and totalitarian totalitarian way and it uh, seems that some ghosts from the from the let's say old cold war past they're they're returning some way so there was just in the news day uh, a day ago that in belarus the or orwell's 1984 was officially uh, the book so yeah so which is uh, which which is uh, of course very emblematic yeah but also, of course, you should understand that we are not in the new Cold War in the sense uh, that the old Cold War was was the confrontation between two, let's say, universalist narratives. Yeah, and for now, you have no such a confrontation. So you have more confrontation in the uh, way of the clash of civilizations. Where, where different military political blocs that represent not, uh, you know, global alternatives, not the ideas relevant for all humans, but they represent just the pure essence as the particular cultures, politic, particular nations, religions, and so on and so forth. So in, in this sense, Putin's regime is not providing any kind of universalist alternative uh, which could uh, challenge the America-dominated uh, order. Yeah. So it, it just argue that, well, you should uh, give uh, space for more civilizations, for more cultures which uh, will uh, reproduce itself. And uh, this multipolar world, according to Putin, uh, is the anti-universalist world. It's a world without any, any even possibilities of some global projects addressed to the whole uh, humanity it's it's really it's i mean it's really interesting this the 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 way you explain it because during the cold war the civilizational aspect was always there but it was really this you know contest as you say between these two universalist ideas and now we don't have that but we you know in here in in the west outside of russia there's a lot of pain great pains a desire to evoke that universalist civilizational uh, 
you know, quality. I mean, you hear Biden speaking in terms of, you know, as you said, in terms of, you know, defending democracy against authoritarianism. They're trying to revive this Cold War situation. And it it seems to me, and here I'd like your comment on this, there is a a desire or a, a perverse nostalgia for the Cold War because it it gave us a simple understanding world to work with and on whose side should you be on and who's on what side? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And this uh, nostalgia is, is not passive. It's very, I will say, functional because it will give energy for the some exact political institutions, for the army, for the military blocs and so on. And of course, for the great rebirth of the NATO that you have in the moment, this kind of spirit of Cold War is, is really crucial because the problem of NATO after after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, was the ideological problem, <laughs> you know, how to legitimize the, the NATO and how to the peoples, uh, you know, of new members of the of this military alliance and so on. And by the way, that is something that uh, absolutely out of understanding of Putin. Because he truly believes that the membership in NATO is the pure desire of the of the elites. Yeah, but but in fact, for now, you have the entry into NATO of Sweden and, and Finland, where for decades are neutral countries, not because of the desires or interests of their elite, but because of the some kind of consensus in, in their societies. And it was exactly Russia and its aggressive foreign policy that changed this consensus. So and, and it's, it's, this fact is absolutely out of, of, I will say, the whole world view of Putin. Yeah. And of course, the same you have with, with Ukraine, even much more. Because, uh, you know, I was thinking uh, a lot during the last uh, months. So retrospectively, hold this transition of the Russian-Ukrainian relations from the early 2000s until now. So just imagine that 20 years ago, in the moment when Putin became president, you had Ukraine as a country where the majority of the population truly believes that Russia is the friendly in the friendly neighbor, that there is no any future for Ukraine without good relations and very, very strong economic, social, political ties with Russia. The position that Ukraine should be a member of NATO was was a marginal position that that was popular among I don't know less than ten percent of Ukrainian population. So you had a real pro-Russian consensus, not pro-Putin consensus. Yeah, not consensus around the question that Ukraine should be integrated in into the the political organization of post-Soviet space. How Putin, you know, proposed it, but it was a clear orientation towards Russia, like strategically, like on the in the political, economical, and cultural, and and so on levels. Yeah. And the great change in this situation when for now you have uh, Ukraine where, I don't know, 99% of population strongly supported the membership of NATO. They 
yeah, of course, they, they don't see Russia as a friendly country and so on. And all of it is uh, not, not a result of the American conspiracy. Yeah, as probably Putin believe, believe it is a, is a result of, of his own actions, is a result of the wrong Russian policy, which, which, which is really disastrous if you just retrospectively look of what, where we were like 20 years ago in, with the Russian-Ukrainian relations and where we are for now and what will be the future of these relations, if it will be any. I mean, it's 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 really striking. Um, and, and there are moments where I can't wrap my head around how Putin has created the very conditions in which he <laughs> was paranoid about <laughs> through his through his actions. Um, how is the in, in within Russia? How does the rhetoric of the Cold War, if it exists, it, you know, if it has a, a major place today, but do you see a is there a revival of cold war in russia um up until you know the invasion of ukraine and even now how are they trying to explain the the contest between russia and the collective west so it's it's exactly the the kind of perversive terrible you know schemas of the old cold war there that are now attributed to the to the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine. I remember that in the very beginning of this invasion, when um, when it was this this great meeting of the Council of National Security of Russia, so one of the participants of this meeting, uh, General Zolotov, uh, who is the chief of the National Guard, uh, he said that okay, Ukraine is American puppet. And in fact, in near by Kharkiv, we have a border not with Ukraine, but with United States. And I was I, I remember that I was really shocked by this uh, thesis because that was that was the very important kind of element of to understand how far they are from from reality how they they adopt this you know cold war imagination where you have just two two political military blocks and where where you have no agency of other countries where you have no agency of the nations of peoples <laughs> yeah and where you even the deny the the very effects of geography because now you you have no border between Russia and United States in Kharkiv. That's a border between Russia and Ukraine. And it's uh, very important. That's, that is very important fact that should affect all your kind of approach to this uh, situation. And, uh, and that is, that is, by the way, uh, that is, uh, that is realized quite correctly by, by American authorities. So they understand that they have no uh, border, uh, with Russia near Kharkov, yeah, and, but 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 Russia Russian leadership is so much so much affected by this this idea by this this worldview. Hey, listeners! I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Ilya Budraisky's. I just wanted to pause for a minute. As you know, there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. 
but there are only a handful about Russia and the wider Eurasian region. So if you're hungry for more food for thought on Russia, check out Jill Dodery's podcast, Kenan X, from war to peace and everything in between about Russia and the neighborhood. Right now, Kenan X is running a two-part series on Russian journalists who fled the country. I highly recommend you checking it out. Kenan X is sponsored by the Wilson Center Kenan Institute and funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. You can hear Kenan X wherever you get your podcasts. You know, let me ask you about the the, the ideology that clearly seems to come to the surface with the, the Putin and his people. Because for a long time, we've described Russia, or at least the Putin government, as being really cynical when it comes to ideology. But now it seems that, you know, just even the way you describe it, their their worldview, their ideological view of the world and the ideological view of what Russia's place in it seems to really come to a surface. Do you see this conflict as being driven by an ideology or what is driving it? How do you understand it's it's what's driving Putin and his people to do this? No, I, I think it's very important to understand that there is no no like a border between cynicism and ideology. But but on in opposite, sometimes that cynicism could be so so deep and so total that it became some kind of ideology, and that we we and actually that is what we have in Russia because of course uh, when you look at uh, at the people on this. Putin's uh, security consuls, consul, yeah, people like I don't know Patrushev, Alodin, uh, or uh, Zolotov, and so on. And of course, none of them are ideological people, yeah. But their their distrust in any power of ideas, their their belief in the pure force, in the pure corruption and the pure power of money, of army, and so on, construct some exact kind of ideological uh, view of reality. Yeah. And of course, the way how they understand, uh, you know, how the global order is organized, what is the American domination, what should be the Russian domination, and so on and so forth. It it is very much, very much based on this very high level of cynicism, <laughs> which turned to a kind of to a kind of ideology. Yeah. So, for example, believe that you have only only interests in the world, and the international politics, the global politics, is only about the interests is uh, is well you can say it is a kind of realistic point of view but but even if you look carefully to the writings of the political realists like in US and other countries for them you know you should you should understand that there are some some interests but if you say that the only pure interests, only pure, you know, powers are should uh, struggle between each each other. 
that could lead that could lead a to to a catastrophe that could lead to the to the destruction of all the institutions because political realism is about how to build the stable global institutions with the recognition of their concrete interests but if you are saying that all the global institutions there that is just a hypocrisy that uh, just uh, just and that cover the real interests of different powers that you you became let's say ideological <laughs> you it seems it seems almost like in here here's I, i'm curious what your thoughts are that this connection to neoliberalism because this seems to be taking the you know homo economicus who is the subject of of neoliberalism or subject of capitalism to its extreme where it's only self-interest it's only this kind of individualist you know granted they're putting it in terms of states but it's it's very this like i said it's about self-interest uh, absolutely absolutely of course you have the current uh, vision of the world this cynical ideology of the Russian elite a result as a result of the let's say of the process of of mixture between different rationalities yeah and um, of course neoliberal uh, rationality was important I will say key element in this uh, in this um, kind of process of construction of the ideology of the of, of the regime yeah and <clears throat> by the way when different experts they are talking about putin in terms that you should you should go back to his young years in the kgb to understand uh, his uh, psychology his political behavior and so on i will say that yeah maybe maybe it 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 makes sense but uh, also you should go back uh, to the to the next period of his of his uh, life especially in the russian 90s when he was the uh, deputy of the mayor of uh, st petersburg and he was a, a very important player in this legendary gangsters Pet- petersburg yeah because uh, because Petersburg was uh, in the 90s like Russian Chicago in in 30s in in US so and you can imagine what kind of school of you know of ideas of understanding of life it could be for uh, Putin as the further president and if you look back to to the uh, great american uh, movies about mafia like godfather and so on uh, of course all these movies were very important for understanding the neoliberal turn of reagan and so on because these gangsters they present some new some new kind of capitalist rationality which break the traditional ties between the capitalist accumulation and the virtue Yes, yeah, so the capitalism is not about is is not moral. Yes, it's a, it's even against any kind of uh, morality. It's a moral, and you, know, you can imagine that 
the same the same school <laughs> of ideas was was uh, extremely important for the formation of the Putin's individuality and not just his own individuality but the whole generation of the Russian political elite which emerged from the experience of the of this gangsters neoliberal 90s well let's turn let's turn to um the left because you've been writing and speaking about you know particularly to to the western left uh, in their understanding of this war and it has indeed you know the war in ukraine has indeed deepened i think an existing crisis on the left um and how it views geopolitics and russia's place in it and it's interesting because alongside of say something like cold war as a concept we're getting you know the mainstreaming of con- of words like imperialism decolonization self-determination um and even internationalism they all seem to have a renewed life but you know the left seems to be or segments of the left seem to be stuck in a cold war framework and it seems what you're saying is this is we really need to understand this as inter-imperialist rivalry you know, this is we can look to pre-World War One as a, if we want to find a historical example. So could you talk about how you approach to the, your analysis of the war as an inter-imperialist rivalry? Western left uh, that that are no, not so far uh, from this kind of from this kind of approach. So their view also always was dominated by the uh, idea that you have american american imperialism and this is this imperialism is a kind of essential for for america itself so there are there are no more other imperialist powers and if you if you have any challenge for this american power that should be should be supported in one way or another because it has some structural progressive meaning so that means definitely that there is no such thing as ukraine at all yeah so and even for now you have uh, you have this great confusion about the most of the western left because they they have no they have no theoretical tools they have no language to describe the current situation uh, with the uh, russian invasion and of course there are just a few of them who are able to openly you know support russia for example in in this situation but the 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 most um, so well distributed approach is to describe this situation is the Interimperialist, interimperialist war. So you have, you have Russia, and you have Ukraine, which is just the other name of American imperialism. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what is the exact instrument of this imperialism. The 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 important thing is the the that is American imperialism in its essence, and. That is definitely a very deep, uh, very deep mistake, very deep uh, mistake, which uh, somehow has a very 
kind of colonial colonial roots of you know of consciousness yeah and it's interesting that when you look at the western different western left like in europe and their positions it is interesting that the left among the smaller nations smaller european nations they have much more let's say sympathy to ukraine <laughs> and much more and much more a deeper understanding of what is going on so for example among the irish left there is a huge like pro ukrainian sympathy uh, for now the most of the left in ireland they they support they supported ukraine simply because they are they can make very clear pal- parallels with their own colonial past yeah and when they compare the very language of putin towards ukraine they immediately recognize the same structure of denial of the right for determination of the uh, small nation and even the very existence of the small nation but if you come to the american left or british left or german left they have a more you know global way of thinking they are talking about interimperialist uh, struggle and so on so i will say that uh, the the reestablishment of the internationalist perspective of the western left should be also come in the parallel with the decolonization of their own consciousness because you should simply recognize the the agency of of ukrainians yeah who are who are really fighting against against russian army and they are not they are not americans <laughs> they are not they are not western imperialists they do not uh, do not describe and understand themselves in this uh, in this way yeah because internationalism is always about the possibility to understand another oppressed nation another oppressed group which exists in the other historical concrete conditions yeah so so do you so in in your view this is you know for leftists to maybe look to the past to find some sort of theoretical toolbox of sorts it's actually not a pre-world war one but perhaps the the efforts the anti-colonial movements of the 20th century i will say that they were pretty combined uh, yeah and what what was important in the analysis of imperialism in the beginning of the century that imperialism was described even by lenin in his in his classical book as the condition of the world as the condition of the capitalist system but not as the essence of one imperialism or another yeah you even couldn't find in his book the definitions like british imperialism or french imperialism yeah because he as you know that he finished his book in 1915 so already in the moment when the first world war was started and he 
clearly realized that attribution of the name of the very definition of imperialism to one country against the other somehow justify one imperialist ambitions against the other imperialist ambitions. Yeah, because of course uh, that is not a problem for one imperialism to define its opponent as imperialist. It's even I don't know Hitler talked about the Anglo-Saxon imperialism and Anglo-Saxon capitalism. So when when you discussed about imperialism or capitalism as the essence of some concrete powers, you immediately devaluate it as the as the condition of, of the world. Yeah, and and immediately devaluate it as a very concrete, important term which help us to 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 understand the reality and find the ground for the common, you know, international action of the oppressed. Now, in a lo- another issue that you've been thinking a lot about, at least judging from your interviews and articles, is is Russia going through a fascist turn? Um, and if if it is, what is fascism in our you know twenty first century? And you've been saying, well, you know, it's not not the fascism of the twentieth century. It's something else. It's something new. Um, so, how do you understand this fascism that you see emerging in Russia? Yeah. So, I think this question is very much related to what we just discussed. Yeah, because because for me. As a, as a Marxist, fascism is a phenomena that is organically related to capitalism. That that is uh, that is created by capitalism. And if you and if you uh, like skip this uh, this moment, you immediately uh, come to the field of uh, speculations. Yeah, for example, I read today Timothy Snyder's article that Russia is a fascist. Okay, so I mean, I I, I also argued in in, in some of uh, my articles that Russia is moving to fascism. But what we understand by fascism, and his explanation is uh, well, it's a cult of personality, it's the like anti-humanist ideology. So basically, that are the bad ideas, yeah, and that. That is about an exception. So some, so you have the the main road of the development of humanity, and you have some terrible exceptions from this road of progress. And that that is liberal approach to fascism, which was which was denied and criticized by various authors. You know, even the main idea of um, Hannah Arendt's work was uh, that uh, German fascism was not an exception. Yeah, It was a kind of logical product of the modern capitalist civilization. And that is the main uh, kind of idea in her origins of totalitarianism. Totalitarianism, that is something that came from the very kind of modern capitalist rationality yeah and i think 
that if we are talking about some fascization in Russia, we are talking uh, not about an, an exception, not about some special Russian test to slavery and self-destruction, but we are uh, talking about the, the realization of some tendencies which exist globally, which exist not only in Russia, which, which exists in the U.S., which exists uh, in, in the Western Europe with the right-wing populism and, and so on. And these tendencies came from the depolitization, from the atomization of the society, we, which, uh, which came from the neoliberal transformation of, of the global society, let's say in the different forms, of course, in the different in the different countries. Yeah, and that's why I think it's uh, important to say that the process that we have now in Russia is different from historical fascism of 20th century because it's not the fascism of of mass movements. It's, it's not fascism of kind of fanatic mobilizations and so on. That is a process that coming coming from the from the top it's coming from the elite because because the society let's say it's it's already you know prepared for for this kind of um this kind of political uh, political work from the top and what is the main aim of this fascization is to kind of rebuild the a society rebuilt individuals as the elements of the machinery of uh, capitalist of capitalist production is the is the pure uh, victory of economy over the politics over the society how it was explained in 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 his analysis of fascism by Karl Polanyi one from my point of view one of the one of the best uh, philosophers, uh, social thinkers who wrote about fascism in, in the 20th century. I, I want to actually, uh, in, in some of the interviews I've heard with you, you actually comment on this lack of mass mobilization, even for the war, to the point where even, you know, elements in Russian society, uh, like nationalists or other right wings who are who are supporters of the war, they aren't even you know marching in support of the war. The 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 war itself and the public's relationship to it is very tightly controlled from the top. There is no desire to seems at least it seems to mobilize the population. Is do you see that as well, or or what is your comment about this issue of the lack of mobilization around the war? So the first thing that we we should understand that Russian society was prepared uh, for this uh, war also in the terms of the destruction of the whole political opposition of the whole of any forms of self-organization you know, of the unions and so on and that means that the, let's say the even the political self-organization from the right, <laughs> from the conservative or, or even fascist um, groups was also destroyed. Yeah. So it, it's a historical paradox that 
for now you see the realization of the let's say the revanchist uh, irredentist program of national bolsheviks from the early 2000s without national bolsheviks so national bolsheviks with uh, all their ideas should be destroyed and marginalized to to these ideas to be realized to become a reality you know yeah it's i i mean it's a great great kind of paradox historical paradox no and of course during during the last decade putin systematically uh, destroyed not just liberal opposition not just left opposition but also far right groups so we which which are not exist even in some stable consistent political form and until now yeah and all this all these people all this russian far right all all the russian nationalists that sh- they should be you know melted into individuals into the pure material sent to this to this war and serve this war of course you have a lot of uh, former far right activists uh, who are who are helping to uh, you know to provide the anti ukrainian propaganda in russia and so on but they they doing it as the part of the political machine subordinating from the from the top you've you know in our discussion you've said a couple of times so far about molding new people um so this of course brings me to the last the soviet project of of you know molding new people and that is homo sovieticus or soviet man and and this this red man you know this soviet man really continues to haunt uh, Russian political discourse. You know, for the most part, it's been a consistent boogeyman for Russian liberals. But now it seems that Putin, even with the war, the Putin's government is trying to resurrect a positive Soviet man. And here I'm thinking of the the return of Soviet iconography and it being melded together with this Z symbolism, the um, this iconography of this old Soviet woman with the flag that we've been seeing the last weeks or so. Talk about this weird configuration or the functioning of the Soviet man and its relationship to what you just ended with, which is getting people within the machinery of the capitalist production. Of course, uh, exploitation of the Soviet symbols and so on was was an important uh, element of Putinism during most of the time of its uh, existence but it was very very let's say functional yeah in the sense that the very um, kind of um, form of the soviet ideology the soviet narrative was permanently denying and 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 destroyed by by this ideology so i i mean the uh, that the ideological twist <laughs> that you have with the 9 of may with the day of victory is very is is very kind of emblematic in the sense because the main uh, idea behind this day in the soviet union was that this day about about the peace 
about the peace restored, about the war should not ever happen, about uh, that never again uh, such a nightmare will be on our land. So that is the main message uh, that you can find in the hundreds of uh, Soviet movies, literature and so on, devoted to the to the victory day and during the putin's rule this narrative was transformed in the idea that we can repeat yeah that uh, we can do the same we are ready for the next world war and we will win with this war with all possible the all possible weapons including nuclear weapons which which is also kind of nonsense for the soviet uh, propaganda because the soviet propaganda was extremely pacifist so you can't, you can't imagine brezhnev who 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 is saying that we can destroy miami by our like nuclear bomb and look how it will happen i will show you it in the picture and so on so in 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 this sense of course of course the the transformation that putin did with the soviet symbols in fact changed totally the meanings to the opposite yeah and if you if you remember his um a speech in the uh, in the uh, b- before the invasion to the Ukraine, where he he said that it was uh, Lenin who created uh, Ukraine, and we should overcome his his this historical mistake. I I think it's very interesting to compare it with his well known his well known idea that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century. So this greatest political catastrophe, I think, he said in the beginning of his career, and after 20 years, he like come to the idea that the very creation of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. Yeah. So in this sense, he is the most anti-Soviet politician that you can imagine. So he's the politician who really threw this war in Ukraine through the denial of the subjectivity of the agency, not just Ukraine, but all the uh, post-Soviet republics. He He's trying to to you know, to steer Lenin's uh, legacy from history, yeah, and um, and I think that is uh, very 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 important to to understand for for the moment. Of course, on the other propaganda side, you have the uh, idea that Putin is trying to restore uh, the uh, the Soviet Union that. The reason why Russia is so so aggressive that it was no true decommunization in the nineties that the KGB was not uh, destroyed and, and so on. But I I mean all this 
type of explanations, all this type of ideological accusations, they are, they are look so, so weak for the moment. It's so much contradict with the, with the very structure of the Russian official narrative that even the liberal thinkers like Timothy Snyder, they prefer to, to use this fascism thing than, than the, you know, this Soviet empire and, and, and so on and so forth. Because it's quite clear that we have some, something different something very different from, from from the Soviet Union in any sense. Do you think, because, you know, this is one of the questions I've been trying to ask myself, you know, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a reassertion of the old Russian imperialism of the 19th century? Um, and, and of course, updated in new forms. Um, are we dealing with, you know, some sort of like, uh, syndrome of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this attempt to renegotiate or continue the negotiation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I, you know, how, how do you understand this in terms of the history of Russian imperialism and Soviet imperialism? Of course, I, I agree that uh, we can find a lot from the, from the legacy of the Russian Empire from the 19th century in what we're having uh, now, because I will say the very, the very explanation uh, that Ukraine is a kind of the fake consciousness, <laughs> yeah, and the true essence of Ukrainians, that they are simply Russians and they should recognize this fact, and that Ukrainianness is the kind of anti-Russian idea that was export, exported from the West, all these explanations you already had in the late 19th century in Russian conservative thought. So that is absolutely nothing new in this, in this, in this constructions. So also I agree with the idea that this, what we have now in, in Ukraine is like final, final, like moment in the, like dissolution of the, of the Soviet Union, because the collapse of the Soviet Union started with the rise of, you know, nationalisms in the post-Soviet republics. And probably the last step should be the rise of the Great Russian uh, nationalism, uh, great R Russian chauvinism, which can exist only in imperial form. Yeah, so because every nationalism has its its tradition. Yeah, it's, it's concrete, like historical past. Yeah, uh, it's its own structure. And Russian nationalism was as, uh, always anti-Western, and it was always imperial. There are no any kind of forms of the Russian nationalism to exist, yeah, and that's why it could reverse in this in this form that we we have we have we have for now. Of course, I agree that the elements of this 
Russian, great Russian nationalism were uh, somehow embodied in the in the Soviet Soviet politics, especially the politics of the late and politics and the, even the discourse of the late Stalinism in the late nineties uh, and early fifties, and we can see even for now how the elements from this discourse also also included by the state propaganda yeah, let's turn let's turn back to the russian left and you said that you know you write that the left the russian left is plagued with the same old problem and that is it its inheritance without a testament what what do you mean by that i mean that the the kind of continuity of the Russian left was broken because because you have a rupture in between the Bolshevik tradition and the let's say the post-Soviet post-Soviet Russian left and in in some way the Bolshevik tradition became became a fetish became something which lost its concrete you know even generational even generational ties with the next you know generations of of activists yeah and i personally feel it very uh very deeply when i meet in other you know countries the people who are i don't know 80 70 years old and who came from the i don't know radical left movements of the uh, 50s or or uh, 60s and of course these people they have experience to and and they have a knowledge and they have a activist culture that could enrich the the next generation of activists but in in russia you you have i don't know people like uh Zyuganov, for example who's who's the same age as as the the heroes of 68 in the, in the in the western europe and what kind of experience what kind of knowledge what kind of culture he he could bring to the new generation and of course this this culture is a terrible culture is is a ter- is a culture of opportunism is a culture of uh, lack of initiative is a culture of you know degraded late Soviet Union bureaucracy, you know, and that is definitely not the source that you can teach from. Yeah, I I remember a funny story. I remember once I was some years ago in some conference in 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 Moscow with with a lot of old people from the different communist whatever parties, and in. That in in one moment the old guy he came to the floor and said, "I want to speak from the generation of '68. I'm from '68 Russian '68ers," and I said, "Like wow, finally we we got some Russian '68er." And he said, "Yes, 
You know, in 68, I was a soldier in Soviet army, and we smashed this Russophobic shit in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> it was so great, and we need to do it again and again. So that was our 68 Soviet army, you know, smash Russophobic uh, mace, mason, <laughs> you know, uh, bullshit. So that is, the, uh, that is a real problem. That is a real problem. The real sign of this lack of the of the historical ties, historical continuity with the internationalist Marxist tradition, and the reason why I was so interested in the legacy of the socialist dissidents in the Soviet Union, that the knowledge about these people, the understanding that. There were not just individuals, but it was it, it was the current quite quite powerful among the Soviet dissident movement. I I thought the the keeping the memory of these people as a part of you know actual political political strategy. The, the, that's why for for me this work is. Not uh, just uh, historical, but uh, also also political. And, and finally, um, you know, when we when we in following our current conjecture, um, there we always kind of focus on certain things. And so I'm curious, like, what are you looking at or paying attention to uh, in the coming months in relationship to Russian society, Russian politics, and of course the war in Ukraine? What are some of the main themes you're focusing on? I, I think that, of course, the current regime is uh, is in crisis, and and it it started this war. It made such a decision, which was which was a failure from the very beginning, in the moment of crisis, and that is very clear from the very nature of this of this decision to to invade. To, to invade Ukraine. That's why I think that it could lead uh, to some, you know, structural problems of this regime. It could lead uh, to the uh, to the growing disagreements on the different levels of the state bureaucracy of the elite, and it could lead to some to some protests from 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 below. Yeah. Also, there are definitely some dangerous tendencies, and these dangerous tendencies are especially that the the war is going on. Yeah. So, and probably it will continue in some coming in some coming months. There, there is no any possible end. And uh, you see how the very condition of war, how it transforms, slightly transforms a society, how it transforms some elements of the state, some elements of the, of the I don't know, police, uh, security uh, forces, and so on. So how this process of fascization is going deeper, deeper in the, in the country. Yeah, and that's why I think that the 
the peace, the any kind of the ceasefire, the any kind of the end of this war and all possible conditions for Russia because because it will be no 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 victory yeah and it 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 will be clear sooner or later for the whole russian society that this whole war was was a failure uh, from the beginning and it and it led to the failure yeah so and that's why i think that this this kind of end of this war is so so much needed yeah is so much needed of course for for ukraine for ukrainians for just the reason to to save their their lives of course it matters for for russian soldiers who are dying there but of course it also matters for the russian for the russian society because the condition of war is really poisoning poisoning the the society the whole relations between uh, the people and so on that was Ilya Budraitskis. Ilya Budraitskis is a political and social theorist previously based in Moscow. He writes regularly for Eflux Journal, Open Democracy, Republic RU, Culta RU, and other outlets, and teaches at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, High School of Economics, and the Institute of Contemporary Art in Moscow. His essay collection, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, was published by Verso in 2022. Okay, Margaret, thank you very much. Um, So what did you think? There's a lot. I mean, there's so much we could talk about because there's so many interesting ideas. But um, I'm just curious, as somebody who is not as familiar with this material as maybe some others, what what are some of the things you thought about? Yeah, well, the first thing that I thought was... So when you first started, you you talked quite a bit about Samuel Huntington and his influence, but not exactly what the ideas themselves are. So what um, I was wondering if you can go into the background of like this clash of civilizations and Huntington's ideas and and what narratives is it informing? Right, right. I'll I'll try to do my best. Um, <laughs> I don't uh, I don't claim to be to know the ins and outs of of Samuel Huntington's idea of the clash of civilizations, but. Uh, This is what I understand and people could take it with uh, whatever grains of salt they want to. The idea is that um, in we had clashes of ideology. Right. And during the the 20th century. Right. It was democracy or capitalism versus communism or communism versus fascism. And what what Huntington proposes that in the post Cold War, after the, the collapse of communism, now we have a turn towards clashes of civilization. So this was originally thought in terms of a clash of is against Islamic civilization. So in a way, 9-11 revealed a clash between liberal Christian democracy, whatever you want to call it on the one hand, versus Islam on the other, right? This is what Huntington theorized that the conflicts of the future will be in these civilizational terms. I see, like a culture war. Uh, not And not just a culture war. It's, a, it's an idea of uh, civilizations almost have a zero-sum game in the sense that uh, so one one take is it let's put it in the russian context 
So one is, is that you have a liberal democracy of the West, right? Europe, United States. And there is the idea of Russian exceptionalism. So there's a you know, one of the things the Putin government has been putting forward the last 10 years or so is this idea of a Russian world, right? A Russian civilization that's distinct and particular and not universalist. And because liberal democracy is viewed as universal, Right. It's going all human beings, regardless of history, culture, whatever, will, you know, end up like, I don't know, Star Trek someday, let's say. <laughs> um, and so the idea of a civilization is that this poses a civilizational threat to, I don't know, the rush, the quote unquote Russian world or Islam or I don't know, Indian nationalism, whatever you may say. And therefore, the struggle the global conflicts or regional conflicts are over these civilizational terms, right? That they they are just incompatible or in Russia's case, as Ilya puts it, you know, the Russian world, the ideology of the Russian world doesn't posit the idea that everyone will become just like Russia. It's not universalist, but it wants to have its own kind of particular presence within that that doesn't accept or rejects or challenges this universal idea of, say, Western liberal democracy, et cetera, human rights, whatever. Interesting. So it's almost like the fact that the liberals are trying to reject nationalism is like makes them makes that I, that perspective all the more imperialist in a way. I mean, and that's what I mean, there's always been. And this is what I think is is what I don't. I mean, one of the things, a couple of things. First is is that imperialism has has always had a civilizational aspect, right? In the nineteenth century, the in the the colonization of Africa, right, came along with an idea of you know civilizing. African peoples, right? The white man's burden to take the savage and turn them into a reflection of good European liberal subjects. Uh, so there's always been that. But I think the difference here is and, and then also one can claim that Cold War was a contest of civilizations, right? A capitalist civilization versus a communist civilization. I think the difference now is that the clash of civilizations is not a universal struggle. So, you know, communism, the contest in the 20th century between capitalism and communism, both of those systems aspired to universalism in the sense that the entire world will become liberal democracy, capitalist, or the entire world will become communist. Now, you're just getting a a, a kind of balkanization or a ghettoization of civilizations which is in a way a kind of old idea. Wait, what does that mean? Balkanization. In the sense of you have a Russian world, you have a, I don't know, European, you have an Islamic whatever world. Um, and these are not evaluated according to uh, universal standards. So if you think about it, one of the, the one of the things that is quite dangerous about this class, clash of civilizations is that it brings up the question, OK, what is human rights? 
if humanity has no universalism, is there, if there's no universal rights and the Russians say rights are this and then the Europeans say no rights are that or Americans will say no human rights are that. It, it brings up how can you have any kind of universal governing uh, values, morals, institutions? Um, so I think I think this is one of the challenges it poses is that, A, it feeds into nationalism, obviously. B, it also could potentially create, um, you know, justifications for pretty horrible behavior. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I have I have mixed views about this because uh, I I recognize that these places self determination. <laughs> if you believe in self determination, then people should have the right to, you know, govern societies the way they want to, right? Um, and if you have universal ideologies, there's something imperialist about that as well. So it's a very complicated. Uh, notion, I think. That makes a lot of sense. And like, uh, kind of connects to uh, what Ilya was saying about how the cynicism in Russia became so deep and so total that became it became like an ideology in and of itself. And like this belief in because there really isn't, you know, some kind of superstructure that's creating the idea of human rights that we can listen to and kind of it's just us. <laughs> it's just us here. And so if you believe in pure corruption and the power of money and the strength of the army, then that perspective makes itself true. And there are no human rights. Well, I think this is what this is. What his point is like, you know, did did Hunt, Huntington's ideas were, were they describing a reality or did Huntington's ideas were they appropriated to create a horrible reality? And his answer, of course, Ilya's answer is it's created a horrible reality, because when you think of things in civilizational terms, who is who is who determines what does it mean to be Russian? What is Russian civilization and the Russian civilization putting put forward the ideology is coming from the state. So, I mean, <laughs> there there, you know, if you have a, a civilization that's not based on, I don't know, some kind of democratic consensus, then that what that means, that nationalism or that notion of Russian, quote unquote, Russian civilization is being imposed by power. Right. And then what if you don't conform to the prospects or the the what supposed Russian civilization? Well, you get excised from that community. But of course, I guess from the perspective of liberalism, that's the question is like with kind of growth and more access to information and improving condition like life conditions is the natural trajectory towards liberalism and towards like this quote unquote West. That has been the assumption for, for a good hundred years or so, I think really since the end of world war two, but that ideology has been there. Um, it, I think it intensified in the 1990s because, you know, communism was defeated. There was a period of euphoria, the triumphalism of liberal democratic capitalism. Um, so, yeah, this it, it, the, the idea that 
in every oppressed person, a liberal Democrat, specifically an American waiting to come out. I mean, the entire one of the underlying aspects of, say, George Bush's war on terrorism was to transform the Middle East into democratic society. So uh, anything else you, you have to bring up after that long lecture? I mean, I have something that I want to mention, but... Uh, I just one of the strong, stronger points that I've found in the interview that I, I found myself really thinking about is is this idea that there is. Um, wait, how do I say this? So Ilya brought up that liberals are kind of hiding behind the idea that there's a choice between trade and violence, especially specifically in the context of this war in Ukraine, that that, oh, we can avoid like military action by sanctions through sanctions and that um, sanctions are not violent. But I, I really appreciated his point that sanctions are an act of war in their own right. And that that distinction, especially today, is is more arbitrary than it may be in the past and that this choice is an illusion. And and the more I thought about it, it just felt like the sooner we come to terms with the reality of violence and political action, the sooner we escape our own saviorist mentality, because I feel like the more that we are doing these sanctions, the more it's like supposed to be making ourselves feel like we're doing the right thing, that that this is the way towards peace and that this is a peaceful you know, alternative. And I like that he's saying it's not. Yes. So there, there's actually a new book out on the history of sanctions. It's by Nicholas Mulder. Um, I haven't read it yet, but it's uh, Nicholas Mulder, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Uh, this came out uh, earlier this year. Um, so and, and this is looking at the history of the use of sanctions since the First World War. Um, so, you know, it's been a long time with us. And, and I think you're, you know, following from Ilya, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a form of warfare. There's no other way, I think, to to look at it as. Um, so, so yeah, um, I, I wanted to actually mention this issue of is Russia fascist debate uh, that has cropped up. Uh, and this, of course, follows along with a larger question of, well, what is fascism in the 21st century? Is there fascism in the 21st century? Now, now, Ilya, um, and I, I have a lot of uh, a sympathy for his his view of this um, fascism as an extension of capitalism rather than it being uh, aberration. Um, as as many liberals have argued, uh, but he says, of course, that it is a the realization of global tendencies of our time. I, I don't think we can look away from the fact that there's been a general rise of right wing populism around the world and very not just in the United States or Russia or Europe, but also in places like India and in South America. He follows um, the theorist Carl Poliani. Who argued that um, fascism is the the situation where the market completely dominates society? To and it occurs in times of crisis to maintain social and economic hierarchies, right? To maintain racial, gendered, class hierarchies within a capitalist system under crisis. Now, my thing though is. And this is the question I have about Ilya's formulation. He seems to suggest, if I'm not misinterpreting him, that fascism is the culmination of 
neoliberalism, right? The total domination of economics over society, right? The only way you can exist is to plug yourself into capitalist mode of production. There's no democratic institutions to challenge it, et cetera. And I'm at, I wonder if, is it a culmination or is it a reaction? Because one of the things that I was reading up on Poliani, um, which who I haven't read that much of to my embarrassment, um, is that it is an answer. Fascism is an answer to crisis. And so you get, say, a Trump or a Putin or a Bolsonaro or a Modi or an Erdogan, you know, and all of these kind of strong men that have emerged, these right wing strong men, because they offer some kind of solution to the crisis of capitalism, which is you working people have been screwed over by these elites, these liberal elites, because they throw in the liberalism stuff. And therefore, we're going I'm going to save you and I don't know, make America great again or however we want to say. Right. So here, fascism is a solution to a problem of capitalism rather than the culmination of capitalism. You see, this is my my question that I don't have an answer for, of course. Well, in that sense, fascism is, if fascism is a reaction to capitalism, then you can probably put that line on basically everyone, <laughs> right? I mean, we're all kind of reacting to capitalism in our own radical ways. Yeah, but I wouldn't call all those reactions fascism, of course. I mean, this is a very particular one, which is, um, you know, the destruction of democracy, you know, my response to the crisis of capitalism would be to proliferate democracy, right? The crisis is a result of the lack of democracy, in my view. Um, uh, whereas the fascist, and you could see this in all of these figures I mentioned a few moments ago, one of the things that binds them all is either they have or aspire to the destruction of democratic institutions, well, thank you very much, Margaret, for your thoughts and your questions. Uh, as you all know, I'm Sean Guillory, the host. I'm joined by Margaret Budick. Uh, this is the SRB podcast, and it, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you, uh, if you want to help us out, please take a moment to share the podcast on social media. We really uh, you know, appreciate the effort to spread the word. Tell all your friends and loved ones to listen to us because, you know, why not? Um, <laughs> it's just an hour a week of your time, sometimes more. And of course, we'd love to have your financial support. Um, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor. So please uh, take a moment if you feel the need to become a patron at uh, patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or go to srbpodcast.org and help us out with some uh, monthly money. Uh, until next time, bye. Thank
history and new rival of friendly fascism. Regrettably, millions will die as before. But just think of the tremendous selection and savings you'll gain. Of course, the loss of freedom and democracy are tragedies, I know. But consider the entertainment value contained within. And to remind you, it is you, the people, who have mandated this course of our fate. So please come with me.